Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 271. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to review and discuss Disney's Wish, the love letter to all of the Disney fans that are celebrating Disney 100 this year. It's so funny because I keep thinking it's the 100th film, but right. it's 100 years of the company. This is really only like their 62nd animated film, if you're talking about traditional Disney animation. Yeah, and they're treating it like it's the rescuers down under. It is getting the rescuers down under treatment. Like if you, for those who have seen Waking Sleeping Beauty, and we've watched it a lot, right? Remember how they talk about rescuers? It had a bad opening weekend and they're just like, pull all the advertising, we're done, we're moving on. As Disney Parks locals for us, they went so heavy with merchandise. They right. had an Asha meet and greet set up and it was like, opening week is done. Get rid of all of it. Send it to the character warehouse. We're moving on. It's so sad because there was just so much merch available when you'd go to World of Disney. You'd see it in the parks everywhere. And then we did go to the character warehouse and it was everywhere. And I don't think that that has anything to do with overproduction, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I mean, the thing is, let me ask you a question before we before we get into this. The year 2023, Disney, unfortunately, for a multitude of reasons didn't really have a strong box office. Do you think for certain people, not for all, but for certain people, do you think it was in vogue to not go see the Disney movie because it almost became sexy to talk about a Disney box office bomb because it was just one after the other after the other? Yeah, I think that it was the TikTok community at large just coming for Disney you know, they love to hate on Disney adults, but I think everybody was sort of expecting a box office flop. But what's more than that, and we've talked about this on the show, it seemed like they were rooting for it. It's like, why? Why would you hope that Disney fails? Especially people that are, you know, big influencers in the Disney community. It's yeah. like, if, if the movies fail... So do your beloved parks that you love to post about all the time. So I just don't really understand the general attitude towards this film, especially when people are sitting here saying, I'm so sick of sequels, I'm so sick of remakes, and pounding the table for original material. And here you got it, and you didn't take the opportunity to go and check it out for yourself. Not only original content, but the return to traditional 2D borderline hand-drawn animation like and the same people that sit there and talk about how innovative into the spider-verse was mm -hmm. for its unique look were the first ones to trash the trailer when this came out and it, it just blew my mind the people that wanted disney to do this were the ones that made sure that they played a hand in tearing this film down now was that justified or not is this a fitting tribute, 
for Disney 100. That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert tees. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code MONOREAL at checkout. Visit FierceFoxCo.com to check out all of the collections. We learn of the Kingdom of Rosas, ruled by Queen Amaya and King Magnifico. Magnifico, a sorcerer, sees how powerful a dream and a wish can be and how easily they are broken. For the good of the world, he protects and grants wishes that are given to him for safekeeping. They're given to him by the citizens of Rosas on their 18th birthdays. We meet Asha and her grandfather, Saba who is turning 100 years old on the day that the king announces that there will be a wish-granting ceremony. Asha works as a tour guide in Rosas, but is secretly interviewing to be Magnifico's apprentice. She initially impresses Magnifico, who sees a bit of himself in her, so he shows her where the wishes of Rosas are kept. He is turned off when she asks him to grant Saba's wish, which Magnifico claims is a dangerous wish, as it is too vague and he fears that it will lead to an uprising. Asha asks Magnifico to give back the wishes that he refuses to grant, but he refuses to do so. He invites Asha Asha on the main stage during the wish-granting ceremony, where he more or less tells her that uh, she will not be his apprentice and neither Saba or her mother's wishes will ever be granted. Asha tells the pair that Saba's wish won't be granted, and he refuses to know what his wish is, because when you grant your wish... When you give it to the king, you forget what your wish is. When tempers flare, Asha and her goat Valentino run into the woods. When Asha makes her own wish upon a star, the star descends from the sky, and Magnifico sees how it affects all of the wishes in Rosas and believes that it may be a threat to him. Star begins to use its magic to help the animals come to life and start to speak, right? Now they're starting to talk, they're starting to sing. Magnifico then decides to use an evil spell book to conduct dark magic to protect himself against Amaya's wishes. She does not want him to use this dark magic. Asha shows her friends, the teens, Star and how the magic comes to life. Star is sad when it sees Simon, who is 18 and has already given his wish to Magnifico. Asha asks Dahlia, who cooks for the king, to help her infiltrate the castle and steal back all of the wishes. Magnifico tells Rosas that the magic used is that of a traitor and is a threat to all, and asks uh, all of the citizens of Rosas to help turn the traitor in in exchange for their wish being granted. Asha steals her Saba's wish and presents it to him, who then puts the wish back into his heart, and he realizes what a beautiful wish it was. Magnifico arrives at their home to apprehend her after she has been turned in. He crushes her mother's wish um, and sees that his power grows. He tries to capture Scar, but the uh, Star, but the family escapes. Magnifico shows Amaya the power of his new staff, because he has now used the dark magic, he's 
made the staff for himself. He's starting to crush the wishes and dreams of Rosas and becoming more and more powerful. He is Disney green. He is Disney green. And he tells those in Rosas that it is in fact Asha that is destroying the wishes. We also learn that Simon turned Asha in and is granted his wish to be the king's most powerful, loyal knight. The teens rally around Asha and Amaya as well to stop Magnifico and save the wishes of Rosas. The teens, along with Star, set the wishes free. However, Magnifico arrives and captures all of them, including Star. He subdues Amaya and captures Asha before putting Star in his staff, becoming all-powerful. Uh, to prevent further wishing upon stars, he covers the sky in clouds and captures the kingdom of Rosas, holding everybody in place. The kingdom, seeing that they are stars themselves, rally around Asha and use their collective magic to defeat Magnifico, who is now stuck in his own staff. With Amaya in charge, Rosas sees a new beginning where the citizens can make their dreams come true. Let's start from the very beginning. Open on a book! Open on a book. The old font. It is a perfect introduction and a perfect uh, way to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Walt Disney. Of the company. It truly is. This is the first of 55 Easter eggs that I caught. That I caught. I'm sure that there are more. And I'm talking about... This was Hidden Mickeys. This was references to Disney history. This is uh, dialogue. Um, I love that they did this. Uh, And I really appreciate, too, that even if you're not the most hardcore Disney fan, you can still watch this and enjoy it without knowing what all of these references are. Yes, but I will. I'm going to jump to the end of the movie for a minute. Um, by the end of the film, I think that the Easter eggs were a little a little too heavy-handed. Like, as a Disney fan, I started picking up on the Easter eggs early, specifically the Seven Dwarfs, right? Because I was just hyper-aware of Dopey this year, so the color palette is the first thing that stood out to me. And there's seven of them. Right, but I loved that that was in there and that these are characters that you will enjoy but you'll love them even more if you're a true Disney fan. But if you're not a true Disney fan, you don't feel like you're lost in it either. Exactly. I felt that by the end, they were just like, okay, here's Peter Pan. You know, like, I felt that they were almost trying too hard. Like, I wish that they would have just left them more subtle. I have a theory about that because you've been saying that since we walked out of the theater and we did do our monoreal in a minute review and you mentioned that too. Um, But... I kind of see by the end where you're thinking that. I want to put a pin in that for right now. And then once we get there, I will explain my theory. But I I get why you feel that way. Um, But I think that there's, I think, I think there's an intent behind it. Um, So let's talk about our setup here. I love this idea of wishes being a tangible entity, almost like a currency, because you have to trade them. Yeah. I thought that that was just a brilliant concept in and of itself, but I love how the story was inspired because um, we did, so we did uh, get the digital copy of Wish that came with all of the behind the scenes features and they do an incredible 
making of feature. It's an hour long. They get into the nitty gritty with each department. It was truly fascinating. But what really inspired this idea is Jennifer Lee. We know her as the producer of Frozen. Um, She's been with the Disney company for a long time. She has worked her way up. I think that she's a brilliant producer and I just love and respect her so much. Um, Her contract was up for renewal, as was Chris Buck, who is the director of Frozen. Um, So they renewed for another five years in 2018 and they realized that puts us at the hundredth year. And immediately Chris went to work and he put up a picture a a still frame of each of the films leading up to this point. So right up to Encanto and strange world. And that's how they realized there was this common thread of wishing on a star. And they were like, well, here's our movie. So forget the fact that there's an entire song about wishing upon a star that that has has become the hallmark of the company. Exactly. (laughs) But, um, I, I like that it that's not where it came from, though. Yeah, I think yeah. if, if that's where your mind was, is how do we sort of capitalize on it? I think everything was going to feel forced. This just seemed to come about in a really natural way. And the other thing is watching this documentary and how much every single person cared about working on this film and doing something new and different, but keeping the legacy and the history in mind. Um there's just so much love poured into every single frame. Um, and I don't want to say too much more than that because I don't want to spoil my overall review. But I think it's important to note that from the jump, this was really made by the fans for the fans. And it's incredibly well-paced from the start. I love the introductions to all of our characters. I love the way that the book is read. I just like the whole kingdom of Rosas and the development of Rosas and what what the people there stand for. Um, and, and it makes Magnifico's fall from grace at the end that much better because I do believe I don't believe he was a control freak at the start of this film. I think that he became power hungry, obviously and very desperate at the end. But like the entire setup, works so well without feeling rushed i also love this idea that they set up that this is a trade town so you know there's people coming and going they've heard of the legend of this community with the wishes coming true i thought that was really so brilliant and what it did for this film stylistically with this setting was just incredible i absolutely love the kingdom that they created here but what's really unexpected is that we get a main character that's part of a kingdom, but she's not a royal. That is so different. I mean, we've seen it later on with characters like Mirabelle because they were in a royal family. But Encanto wasn't your typical hero's journey story. That was more like woman versus herself. And it was about her and her family. Um, so here to see that we have the main character and she's not a princess, I'm fine with that. But it really did break the mold on this one. But they still found a way to get her into a royal setting and into a castle by having her do this apprenticeship or or applying for the apprenticeship, which I thought was a really smart move. I go back and forth with that. I love the idea of her being a tour guide. And again, that lends so well from being this trade port and knowing that you have a lot of tourism there. I thought that that was brilliant. But I think that it's the 
interview for the apprenticeship that I bump on a little bit because at the time, you know, she's 17 years old. Um, and if you're going after being an apprentice for like a known sorcerer, like wouldn't you have had to displayed some sort of magical ability? Like, wouldn't you be more handpicked for this role instead of we're just going to have open interviews? If it was like for an assistant, I'd buy it. But for an apprenticeship, this is where I sort of started to question the rationale behind this decision because I feel like for the time period, and this is supposed to take place in medieval times. Actually, that was a really brilliant decision too. This is supposed to be the origin story of wishing on a star. So it precedes all of the fairy tales that we know. Besides just being an original fairy tale, this is taking place before Snow White, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, before any of them. Um, so really smart choice there. But keeping in mind that original time period, I feel like if a woman especially displayed any kind of magical powers or expressed interest in wanting to pursue them, she'd be burned at the stake. I mean, we saw it in Hocus Pocus. I'm saying. You know it's bad if Sean just referenced Hocus Pocus. Um, also, I would have been fine if that's where that film ended, but you know. <laughs> so I feel like this was all sort of for the sake of creating this nervous awkward interview and showing the quirky side of this character and I feel like that's a place where this movie really got panned was because we saw um in the trailer Asha sort of fumbling and stumbling over herself and that's where I don't appreciate the public backlash that the trailer got because we all loved it when it was Punzi and Anna and we dubbed them as adorable characters and okay I get that maybe seeing Asha doesn't feel as fresh as when we saw it you know five six films ago more in Tangled's case but um you know I think what people have to keep in mind is that the writers that are penning these films now, this is sort of what they knew. If they grew up on Tangled or if they grew up on Frozen, they are entering these jobs now. So they're sort of writing to the characters that we know. And that's why we're seeing this, you know, obviously Disney has done a lot to push women forward especially, you know, when they did it in the 90s and we were starting to see the separation or the, the shift from your typical Cinderella, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty type of princesses. We saw a lot stronger female characters. Now, this is like another era of what's being written because who is writing it? This is what they know because this is what they grew up on. And this is why, you know, you sort of sort of saw a resurgence of all of these reboots. I mean, make no mistake, a lot of reboots are getting rebooted because the studios know that they can capitalize on a fan base. But as far as the creative end of it, 
part of the reason we're seeing reboots is because it's what people knew from what they grew up on. Like even something like Ninja Turtles, you know, you saw this revival. It's because kids grew up watching them and now they are in the roles and of that age where they are the creators, they are the ones making the decision and that's what they're writing because it's what they knew and what they loved. There are, but something like Ninja Turtles and superhero films in general, there, there's such a rich history there that you can kind of just keep telling the story. True. Harder to do, I think, um, in a fairy tale. In response to what you said, this is where, like, I'm just going to, like, I am so sick of social media. Oh, and, yeah. I, and And I'm sick of film critics. Which, like, might sound funny. I don't consider us to be film critics. I don't. I consider us to do a talk radio show where we discuss our love for Disney films. Do we critique them? Yes. But I also don't put myself on a high horse. And I don't believe that I am. This is just what I like to do. Right? And we try to make this easily digestible. And we try to make this super approachable for people. I am so sick and tired of, for that backlash, and I'm so glad that you brought this up, the backlash for Asha, where they're like, here's another Anna, here's another Mirabelle, quirky, you quirky, quirky. For it. Correct, correct. See, this is what drives me crazy. And this is where I, I kind of hope that moving forward, Disney says, as Bob Iger said, we're going to shift focus onto storytelling. And put it back in the hands of the creative. Put it back in the hands of the creative. Critics be damned, because we're so sick and tired of them. The critics were the ones that wanted pantsuit princesses. And then they got too many of them, and it's, well, wait, we don't want too much of that. And then you got the adorkable ones, and you loved it. And now you do this, and they go, here comes another, another quirky princess. But if they made her more like Aurora, you'd criticize them for thinking backwards. There's You're Bingo. never going to make these people happy. The reason why... I'm just going to put this out here now. The reason why this movie got panned by critics, cause, and unjustly, by the way, it, it's not... It's not well-received on Rotten Tomatoes, which to me is a rag anyway. It's like the weekly world news. I don't even pay attention to that anymore. I have been telling you this for the better part of a year. Get on Letterboxd. They panned it for all of the rest. Disney kind of played it safe here because they told uh, an original story that meant something to the creatives without having to shoehorn a bunch of politics into it. That's why the critics went after this film. That's why the critics went after this character. You didn't give them exactly what they wanted. Because for the last year or two, you gave them exactly what they wanted. And you know who didn't like it? The movie-going audience that just wants to go see a fairy tale with a happy ending. You gave it back to the fans. And I hope that this gets the second life that Elemental got. Once it did hit streaming. I hope that this happens here. But that's why the critics went after this. So I wanted to go off on that tirade now. Because I you brought it up and I wanted to go off on it now. It just drives me insane. You can't make these people happy. You give them what they want. And then you give them one too many and they crucify you for it. 
the, the whole reason why the box office bombed the way that it did was because the critics manufactured, I believe, a situation where they forced studios, not just Disney, studios in general, I think they forced studios into making the films that they wanted them to make. Well, it's not art house enough. It's not progressive enough. It's not modern enough. Gimme, 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 gimme. And then you got it. And the minute they take a step back from that, you pan it again. I'm just, I'm, I'm just saying, like, I, I do believe that this social media generation, the TikTok generation, the, the armchair critics, and you can call us that if you want, I think a lot of people played a hand in making sure, to your point, because people were rooting for it, for making sure that this film didn't do well. And, and you just are never going to make all of them happy. And I hope that this film, I hope they look at this film at the end of the day and say, you know what? We made a damn good movie. We made it our way. And this is what we're going to keep doing. And we're just going to make films. We're going to make Disney films. We're going to make magical Disney films. And we don't care what the critics say. That's what I hope is the, I hope that's what they learn coming out of this. So when you're saying critics though, because I think that there is a difference I like when I think of a film critic, I think of obviously like Siskel and Ebert or like an A.O. Scott. I mean, like, yes, if you're writing for the New York Times, like those are your highbrow critics. But are you talking more about the influencers who just had something to say? Because uh, to me, that's more where the problem is, is that if an influencer pans a trailer, everybody else on the app sort of jumps on that bandwagon and then collectively people decide that they're not going to go see it. No, I think it's a collection of both because I think now that influencers are just being called critics. I think that they're given the same credential as a critic, but absolutely. Oh yeah, it's the new, the new wave of what criticism is going yeah, to be. No, but absolutely. Your New York times, your LA times, like I don't, I don't No, I'm done with them. Give me a real entertainment magazine, like a variety, like a Hollywood reporter. I'm more interested in what they say because that's what their entire publication is about. Yeah. Uh, these other newspapers, especially something like the New York Times, where they put themselves at such high brow, uh, they're the ones that I think um, are playing a big hand in manipulating what they want these studios to do. And the studios give in. Yeah, that's that's part of the problem. Uh, they cut off their. Now I'm off on a whole thing, but this is but this is not a commentary of Disney at this point. This is a commentary of Hollywood in general. Yeah, Hollywood executives have cut off their nose to spite their faces to make these big publications happy, not caring whether or not the movie going audience gave a crap or not, especially coming out of a pandemic where people weren't going to the movies, where they were forced to stay at home, where they didn't want to go into public places for a couple of years. And then, to make matters worse, when you start getting people back into the movie theaters, you have a writer's strike. And then the same people are sitting there saying, don't go to the movies because you're feeding the big machine that doesn't want to pay the working class, all of which is true. But it's like, you're never going to make these people happy. That's my, that's my whole thing, is you're never going to make them happy. This should have been a dark side chat. Wow. <laughs> we need to get you a margarita. Imagine if I had tequila in me right now. Let's get back to the film itself. Um, 
Because... No, but I'm glad we had that out there. I'm glad because I think that that's the bugaboo. Right. Yeah. And no, I think that this we is, had to get that out of the way. This is a huge part of it because we are talking about, I mean, not that it impacts our review at all, but we are talking about, you know, these films as successes and failures. And, and by today's standards, unfortunately, this was a box office failure. And, you know, that's, I, I think that's part of why we do what we do. I mean, to your point, we've never considered ourselves film critics. We started this podcast because it's what you and I were doing anyway. We love watching Disney movies. We love talking about them. We just decided to put a mic in front of us while we're doing it. But my hope for this podcast has always been that we help someone find their next favorite Disney movie or perhaps give a second chance to one that they didn't think that they liked and if they still don't like it, maybe they find something that they can at least appreciate it. So especially now when there are so many voices coming from so many places, um, that's really my hope for our part in all of this is that we can encourage people to shut out all of the noise and just watch it for yourself and, and form your own opinion. Right. And if you still dislike it at the end, then you dislike it at the end. We have a lot of movies we talk about on this show that we dislike at the end of the day. But just give it a chance. Yeah, especially those deep dives. That's that's what I love most. Speaking of deep dives, let's get back to Wish. Okay. Um, because we got, uh, all right, a little bit into Asha. We're going to break down her her full character right. later. But yeah, there's, there's another thing that I bump on with this interview. Um, you know, the queen is taking her up to meet the king, to meet Magnifico. And she tells Asha that she's rooting for her. So I love that there's that little, like, shot in the arm for Asha here. But what is sort of confusing is that the queen clearly knows who Asha is from her giving tours. Right. Uh, it, it sounds like, you know, they... They later get into how they knew the father because they're a prominent family in this community. So I'll buy all of that, especially because the queen is probably going to have more of her ear to the ground and know what's going on with the townspeople versus Magnifico, who's up in his tower doing God knows what. But I kind of feel like if Amaya knows who Asha is, Magnifico might too. Or Amaya would have at least said something to him. So I just feel like this is where the interview doesn't necessarily work. I, I wish it was more of like Amaya noticed her. She handpicked her and now she set up this interview with Magnifico. And maybe instead of coming in not knowing who Asha is, there's just a little bit more of a familiarity. Like, oh, I knew your father. That does come out eventually, but I wish that was established from the jump, especially because, and this is more to my point, we don't know how fractured Amaya and Magnifico's relationship is. Yeah, because at that point, it's really not at all. Exactly. And she's telling Asha, this is what you need to know. He talks a lot. He, you know, you need to be a good listener. Uh, don't question anything. What a sorcerer needs is what a sorcerer needs. She's not really cluing us in. We can see that she's walking on eggshells, clearly. But she's not cluing us into like... I've kind of had enough of his shtick by now. And I think that that also would have been more effective to 
plant that as the seed as to why she's rooting for Asha because she wants somebody to help manage him because maybe she sees that how easily he can go off the rails and she's afraid of what he is going to do with this power because I do feel like you need a little bit more groundwork laid here for why she turns later on. I do like how they draw parallels, though, between Magnifico and Asha. Absolutely. I thought that that was a really smart way of moving about with having Magnifico open up the room where the wishes are being kept. Because the fact that he has never really shown this to anybody, and yet he picks Asha, it seems like a very quick knee-jerk sort of decision, but... He obviously sees a lot of himself in her, um, which then leads into a duet. And we'll talk about the music in a little while here. Um, it leads to a really nice moment for them, which immediately falls by the wayside when she... And, and honestly, I'll be, I'll be frank with you. I agreed with Magnifico when he was like, oh, you're asking me for favors already? Usually people wait that out a little bit. Now, maybe that's because that comes from when you and I worked in radio and as soon as we started working in the radio station... It's PTSD. Yeah. It's P- it's exactly what it is. People who you haven't seen or heard from in years are, hey, uh, you got those Jonas Brothers tickets? Okay, can you get me Gaga tickets? It's just like, yeah, I haven't spoken to you since high school. I'm in my mid-20s now. Yeah, and I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to get you Jonas Brothers tickets. So, like, I, it's PTSD, but I, I, I agreed with how he handled that. Um... But not where I thought it was going to go. I thought yes. that he was just going to disqualify her in that moment because she came off as being uh, sort of unpure at that point, you know, that she had an ulterior motive. So for him to actually consider granting the wish and saying it's too vague, then you kind of saw how Magnifico is really about keeping people under his thumb. Not the total control freak off the rails that we see later on when he becomes completely unhinged, but you can see where he does kind of get off on keeping people in their place, so to speak. Exactly. I mean, that really is the launch point for why he becomes unhinged is because now he has control. Um, yeah, I really like this whole scene. Um, I like how they have a common ground. I like how Asha opens up about what her father instilled in her. And, you know, I love that she draws, you know, like that is a quirky part of her personality, but I love that she exposes that even though she flips through her book and she's like, I like to draw. Is this something? I mean, it's a nice nod to animation and to hand-drawn animation. And I love that as a part of her character, but like the interview, this is again, where it's just like, you needed to make her quirky. And I feel like it's too much by you know, leading off with, um, I care too much. That's a weakness. I don't love that line at all. Um, to me, that is a strength and a weakness. And actually, if you want to nail an interview, that's what you say, because yes, you invest a lot of yourself into your job, but at the same time, that makes for a difficult worth work-life balance. So I always like to end an interview with that note, but I don't love here that it was all a negative trait and they never really turned it into a positive. And that's where, again, like I said, the interview is not working for me. I kind of wish that she was just hand selected and like this was hers to lose. 
back to her drawings though. Um, I think it was sort of a miss to make her father look so much like Pasha and not like Walt. I think that that would have been like a nice little nod. I know that they were trying to keep things culturally accurate to the region that they're in, um, which I think is great, especially, you know, going back to it being like a trade town. But I would have loved to see a little bit of Walt come through in her father because you can't. You can't do it through Magnifico. You're not going to make your villain look like Walt. It actually would have been hilarious. It would have been hysterical. <laughs> Maybe. And then, you know, you can't really have the grandfather look like him either because it was questionable as to whether or not we're even going to see him live through this entire film. And at one point, uh, they were going to take him out in the story, but they didn't. Um, so anyway... Um, for the most part, though, you know, I t- I'm, I'm talking about a lot of the things I bump on. I do like the way that the scene plays out and that they do find a common ground. Magnifico does offer her the position. Um, and then everything from here subverts your expectations because you think that Asha is just going to accept because it's what she wants. And then instead, she does ask for the favor right away. Um, But I think that does speak to her character because that's all she cares about is seeing her grandfather's wish come true. Um, So I don't think that she was doing it in a way where she was trying to get ahead or she was trying to ask a favor, really. I think it was just coming from a genuine place. Um, But here's where I feel like the film, because it does subvert your expectations, it sort of takes off before we've really settled in. So I think the pacing picks up quite a bit here because then Magnifico insists that she comes and she sits on the stage to everyone else. It appears like she's got this position now. Even Amaya doesn't know what's going on and she's sitting right next to Asha. And we see this ceremony with the new citizens where they're handing over their wish. And this scene just makes me like feel icky because Magnifico says to the newbies, once they hand over their wish, it's a real weight off your shoulders, isn't it? And he kind of like throws the sideways glance over back at Asha. Um, And this moment just stings so much because knowing what we know as the audience, I mean, we are actively seeing these people get brainwashed by Magnifico. And this is where, to your point, he's got everyone under his thumb, but now we see the build on that a little bit. The self-righteousness. Exactly. So let me ask you, though, do we think that he's kind of been unmasked too early? Um... You can make the argument for it, but I think that the film has a very good runtime, and there's not a lot of wasted time in this movie. You know, if I if I found 10 minutes in the middle of the film where I was like, eh, you don't really need this, cut this out, I would have rather her see, I would have rather seen her take the apprenticeship and see how the sausage is made. Yes. But, but, um... I don't think this movie needed 10 or 15 more minutes of runtime. I think at an hour and I think it's an hour and 34 minutes. I think the runtime's actually spot on. And I don't, there's to me, there's no wasted screen time. So 
They do it quick. They do it early. Perhaps a little abrupt, but it didn't bother me that much. Um, and I actually, that that scene, as you said, it makes you feel icky. Like, I feel like I need to shower after watching that presentation, yeah. especially because he's such a showman. Yes. Um, it's every reason why I really like him as a villain. Like, to me, you you immediately have to love what you see. You have to buy him as being just a really good villain. He's a good, eccentric bad guy. And that's the brilliance of this film is that we see a villain's origin story unfolding in front of us. It's not like when we meet Ursula or Jafar and they're already just evil for evil's sake because they've been scorned. Right. Um, this is a really ty different type of villain that we're dealing with. But I, I guess that's it where I go back and forth on it. What you said about it would have been interesting to see her start the apprenticeship and then he gets exposed little by little. Um, I agree with you. I don't think that they needed more screen time in that regard, but I feel like this is just a lot to happen before the I want song. And I feel like we know more about Magnifico now than we do about Asha. Um, however, I do love how the scene cuts against, you know, we see him stealing the wishes. We see the trade that these people are making. And then we get this really lovely little beat of Asha's home life where they're eating dinner and she knows what she knows and she can't sit still. And her family can tell that there's something going on. And once she explains to them what's happening... Her grandfather says that he believes he's better off not knowing what his wish is. So I love how these scenes cut against each other because you're really doubling down on the idea of how people are being brainwashed by Magnifico because, you know, Saba has lived in this town his entire life. He's had a good life. He he loves the community. Um, and he believes in Magnifico. And not just in him as, as a leader, but he bought what Magnifico sold. Um, so I really love how these scenes are, are just right up against each other. Um, and you get to see both sides of it. Yeah. And then you obviously have Asha run off into the woods. She has her I want song. And then the star, she wishes upon a star independently like you said, the whole point of this is this is the origin of wishing upon a star. Nobody's ever done it before, so nobody knows what's going to happen. Well, they wouldn't think to, right? Because right. your wishes are all given to Magnifico. But that's where I think Asha's age at 17 is so important because next year she's going to be at the age where she can give a wish. So it's like if she was... If, if they had made her 18, I like that we didn't see that internal struggle of like, or if she had started the apprenticeship and he's like, you know, what if I take your wish early? I like that we didn't see that decision play out of what would happen if I, if I do make my wish, if I do give it to him. And instead she just entirely takes matters into her own hands. Um, and I also love the idea that the wish from the star goes to the person who doesn't need it for themselves. They just need to stop somebody else from having it. So the star falls from the sky and immediately the animals start talking. 
And I thought that that was hysterical. It was great. I was like, all right, because, you know, you've seen, for the most part, most of the time, the characters in the film, if they're human, don't speak to the animals. Well, they speak to the animals, but the animals don't speak back. They don't hold conversation. Really, it's it's Jafar, right? Like Jafar and Iago. Um, and I believe they also did it in The Rescuers, right? But other than that, most of the time you're thinking it's like Sleeping Beauty. Or not Sleeping Beauty, a Snow White. She's out the world, you know, she's got her animal friend and she sings, right? But they're not conversing, you wait until you have an animal-centric film, like a Bambi, where they're talking to each other. A Jungle Book, where they're talking to each other. In this case, um, they're all... You're kind of just like... It's an amalgamation of everything that is Disney. It's fairy tales. It's music. It's animals talking. It's people talking to animals. And we're going to put it all with the Wish Upon a Star. The whole thing plays out very well comedically. I also think that that's where, when Disney becomes self-aware... The, you find the best comedy there. I mean, they do it so brilliantly with Enchanted uh, because that's the whole parody of, you know, Snow White sings and then the animals come and help her. Um, so I, I think this is done in more of a tongue-in-cheek way, but I love it. I honestly wish that they had held on the trailer as funny as it is to see, you know, Valentino sounding like Sean Connery. Um, and, you know, they're playing that to the kids, I think you could have just had Valentino on the trailer. He's he's a cute little goat. He's a baby goat. I think that would have given kids enough to latch onto between that and Star, and you didn't necessarily need that reveal that they're going to talk because this would have landed so much harder comedically had we not known that there were going to be talking animals, and this is what spawned the talking. So... Magnifico wants to find out who brought the star down, which to me I kind of thought was funny. He's like, who's the threat? Who did this? Like, who do you think? (laughs) Think about what just happened. Who do you think it is? Who knows what's really going on? Right. Yeah. Um, I do like this scene, though, how uh, Asha has asked Dahlia to try and stall, and it totally backfires because what Dahlia asks is innocent enough but then it gets the wheels turning and then he starts getting grilled by the townspeople. And now this is the jumping off point of, oh no, I no longer have control. Yes. Uh, while we're talking on Dahlia, I do want to talk about um, the scene where Star is introduced to the teens because that precedes that distraction scene. Yes. Because Asha's going... To her friends, they need, you know, she needs help. She's trying to keep Star at bay because Star is trying to escape that burlap sack that Star is in. And she doesn't want anybody to find Star, right? And she needs to know how she can break back in to get uh, her grandfather's wish back. Right. I love the moment where Star is floating about and kind of playing with the teens. And the minute Star gets to Simon, Star gets sad because Simon doesn't have a wish because he's already 18 and the wish has already been given to Magnifico. I love that they played that. Nice catch. I didn't grab that at all. Wow. I thought it was perfect. And though when Magnifico says, I will grant the wish to the person that turns her, you know right away who it's going to be. Oh, for sure. And I kind of wish 
that um, when Magnifico did apprehend her, um, and I think I'm jumping ahead just a little bit, I wish that as soon as he said, you've been turned in, he would have done one of those sidesteps and Simon is standing in the doorway. Yeah. He's like, you've been turned in. I gotcha. You know, and then and they escape. And it's not until later on the stage with Simon. I wish we would have seen it in that moment. But it does feel like more of a twist. I mean, you you know that Simon wants to fast track his wish getting granted. So it's not a surprise that it happens. But they also sort of have your eye on Gabo because, you know, he he is the teen that parallels Grumpy. Uh, so he's always got something to say about everything. And when she does go to ask for Dahlia's help, um, he's probably the most vocal. Nay saying we're not going to go against anything and, uh, you know, I'm not going to support you. So I think there's also a strong case that it might have been him turning her in. Um, so I think it does sort of feel like a twist when it is revealed that it's Simon. Um what I also love is that once uh, Asha is caught, um, Magnifico doesn't even know for himself that he will have even more power if he's destroying wishes. So when he yeah. crushes her mother's and realize, oh, this is another power source for me, uh, it really raises the stakes. It does. And see, that's where to me, like he likes keeping people under his thumb and he's dirty that way but he's not completely manipulative either because it's not like he was doing this the entire time it's not like he was taking the wishes that he knew he was never going to grant and crushing them to become all-powerful and the thing that i sort of wish that they had done leading into that moment because he goes to the spell book the first time and maya says what are you doing don't touch the book and he's like you're right but of course we know he's going to do it anyway i wish the book would have somehow taken hold of him like i wish that there would have been like a dark magic that took control of him because he kind of steps in it right like he kind of accidentally unlocks this power that he never knew that he had and that becomes his springboard the more unhinged he becomes like that much i'm okay with I, I sort of wish that it hadn't been accidental and that that became his jumping off point. I would definitely agree with you on good move not having him crush the wishes that he knows that he's never going to grant. Um, because, you know, we're watching the fall from grace with him. So there still has to be the good there so that we can see what made people trust him in the first place. And... It is also a part of his character, that self-righteousness, believing that he is doing the right thing. So I think there is still traces of good left because he genuinely does want to protect these wishes and keep his promise. So I like that this is the first time, you know, that all, that all works, that this is the first time he's actually crushing the wishes and harming them. And that he didn't know it would give him power. Because now, now that we see it play out, it's not even the wishes that he knows that he's never going to grant. It's he's spiteful. He's taking it out on the people who questioned him. Because the three that he picks, yeah, as nice as they are 
Easter eggs for like some classic Disney scenes, those were the people who rallied around Dahlia and started taking what she planted and running with it. Um, I am going to disagree, though, on the book pulling him in, because if it had been that, I feel like there would be some sort of redemption arc needed where it wasn't his own free will. So maybe there is some good still left in him. And I feel like then it it wouldn't give enough levity to Amaya's decision to leave him and turn on him if he wasn't acting of his own free will. I, I think he needed to own this decision. I like Amaya's role in this, by the way. How she's there initially when he reaches for the for the spell book, she talks him out of it. He starts crushing the dreams. He makes his staff. Um, she sees how unhinged he's become, and her immediate reaction is to turn on him, work behind his back, because she knows that he's unhinged, and she knows the harm that he's going to do and undo all the good that they did in Rosas. I like the fact that that's immediate, and I like the fact that she kind of goes for it in regards to tracking down Asha and working with her and the teens to defeat him. I go back and forth with that because I feel like we just needed one more little beat with Amaya or one little seed planted that she was already sort of cautiously optimistic about his power. Because like I said, you know, she's laundry listing what Asha needs to do as the apprentice. So she's setting up the idea of like, he's very particular and we're just going to obey him. Um, you know, and we do see her cautioning him against the dark magic. But once he is revealed as truly evil, she's taking a big risk by turning on him. Um he could hurt her in some way. Like what happens to her wish or what's going to happen to her? Like forget just the fact that you're leaving your husband um, because they do address that line in the song where, you know, they give her the lyric um, that she was, she was too blinded by love to see what yeah. was really going on. I'll buy all of that, but we just need to know what's really the driving force that, makes it worth the risk for you right. to walk away. I mean, obviously you are doing what's right. Obviously Asha and the teens need your help, but what was really the thing that made you say, you know, that made you not stay with him out of fear? Yeah. 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 And I, I just think that would have been interesting too, especially knowing that originally, Amaya's character, it was going to be like an evil partnership between the two of them. Right, right. Um, I like the fact that he convinces Rosas, as briefly as it was, to turn against Asha. That he has them convinced that she is the threat, that she brought down the star, that she's destroying wishes. I thought that that was a good way to kind of get the mob mentality to gang up on her. Absolutely. It's very, uh, very wicked, Honestly, like once, uh, once they pin Elphaba, um, but I, you know, I like that they did that. I didn't, I didn't feel like it was derivative or anything like that. Um, and I also like, uh, 
I thought it was a really funny line when um, Amaya says, oh, should we gather the townspeople and let them know what's going on? He's like, oh, we've been gathering them a lot lately. Uh, and then he's like, do it anyway. I, I thought that that was really funny because it's true. Like anytime we do see a scene with these townspeople, unless Asha's walking through them, it is at a big gathering. Yeah, um, so big I, I like that meeting. they sort of call it out. Um, The one really heavy handed reference to Disney, though, when Magnifico starts crushing wishes. Oh, my God. I love it. A nanny for your horrible children. Pop this one. It, I, I don't care. I know it's so heavy. I don't care. I loved it. Because he basically sums up the... F- I Listen, Mary Poppins, to me, is the greatest film that this company ever made. Hands and, and there's never going to be one that's as good. Um, no, Pirates of the Caribbean, but... There's never going to be one that's as good. Uh, but but he basically sums up the film. A nanny for your awful children. Bang! Like, it's just <laughs> very funny to hear it said like that. Yeah. Because it's essentially what it is. Really just reducing it to, you know, it's one of the most charming films of all time <laughs> for your horrible children. And and frankly, we get Peter Pan in there too. And I didn't mind that we see Peter Pan flying because that was the dream. That's what we didn't need to see Peter later. We, we didn't need to see Peter building an airplane at the end of the movie. In the same getup, in the costume. Like one was enough. You didn't need it the second time. I'm not ready to pull my pin out yet. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. Um, so now Asha is being chased around Rosas um, while she, she's trying to lure Magnifico away from his tower while Star and the teams go in to free everyone's wishes. Uh, and Star gives her a wand for protection since he won't be there with her. Um we will get into what it means that she becomes the fairy godmother. Not the fairy godmother, because I don't think that the intent is that she is one and the same as Cinderella. Um, but what I wish here is that she had a better handle on the wand and demonstrated a little bit more confidence with it, because I feel like we need that for her character arc. And instead, they lean into the quirkiness of you, you don't know what's coming out because she doesn't have control. Right. So I, I would have been fine with a couple of gimmicky things like the apple. That was funny. Um, and I totally buy the idea that she's winging it because, again, she's going to be the apprentice, but she never displayed any, you know, aptitude for magic. So I, I get that she's just kind of making it up as she goes along. But I wish that they had just made her a little bit more adept with it more quickly so that it, it's like, oh, she's got this. I love that. At the end of the movie, they made this about Rosas, that they made this a community thing, that it took all of them who came to Rosas for a better life and to get their wishes granted. It took all of them to grant their own wishes and overthrow Magnifico. It's it's brilliant. Uh, we've never seen anything like it. It's very original. I mean, I love the idea of be your own hero when our main characters are able to figure it out for themselves and take down the bad guy. But because Rosas is such a big part of this, I mean, really, Rosas, it's not just the townspeople. Rosas is a character in and of itself. So I love how they brought everybody together. Um and it wasn't just Asha that found her inner strength. It's everyone. But I think that that's also what sets this film apart as far as not having Asha be a part of the royal family. You know, it's funny that you bring up 
that critics pan this, I, I think that a large part of that is because this is just such a great reflection of what happens every day and what's happening in our own country now where people are being brainwashed by the government and you see what happens when they band together and they can agree on something and they take down the bad guy. And I think that goes back to what you said of why the media at large didn't necessarily like that story being told. Yes, because the media plays as big a hand in that as any. And they don't like the mirror being held up. That, exactly. Mirror. That's a good pun there. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So now I do want to address what I was talking about uh, as far as you feeling that some of the references are very heavy-handed. I mean, like I said, I love all of the Easter eggs that come through in the dialogue. Uh, I love all of the hidden Mickeys. I love all of the, you know, similar frames that we get that pay homage to scenes, uh, you know, iconic scenes from Disney movies, like um, when the bell's ringing and the birds are flying by it, um, that's Pinocchio. And it was such a huge achievement when they did that shot the first time um, because they were doing so much with the camera movement and it was like a really long uh, pan through the town. So it was a very hard shot to pull off. And I, I love that they did, that they uh paid tribute to it here and actually what was really cool is that the director chris buck pinocchio is his favorite movie so the true test of the design to see if this style was going to work they had asha walk through pinocchio's village to see if it would work as far as her popping off of the background and that was the final test before they were like okay we can move forward with everything um but anyway Back to why I feel like you think this was heavy handed. Um, I think because Asha becomes a fairy godmother. Um, and even before that, the way that we see the town in Magnifico's clutches. Yes, we see our traditional Disney villain green, which I love. But the way that they are all tied up uh, and bound by that magic is very reminiscent of Sleeping Beauty when the vines come over the town and everyone is asleep. Um, So when I first saw this, I was kind of like, you know, I know that they're paying tribute, but this is straight up something that we've seen before. Um, So it really took a couple of viewings of this film to recognize where those elements, even though they are references to other films where they stand on their own in this one because the whole time it was foreshadowed that Asha was going to become the fairy godmother whether it was as Magnifico's apprentice and that she got her own power eventually or even just down to her clothing uh, they designed her with pumpkin seeds in the detail of her dress and that was supposed to clue us into her future um And then as far as the Sleeping Beauty vines and the mirror, which is obviously a reference to Snow White, yes, you are inspired by those films, but Magnifico this whole time has been a narcissist. 
they've been planting these mirrors and him looking at his own reflection the entire time. So him being trapped in a mirror, like, yes, it looks familiar to us, but it is such a fitting punishment for this character to be trapped in a mirror. Like, this is what you wanted. Now you you get to look at yourself all day long in the dungeon. Um, so I do understand where you feel like it's very much in your face with all of these references to the old films. But I think that... Um, it definitely has enough legs where they're standing on their own and they serve this story without just being, look at us, paying tribute. Let's start talking about our cast and our characters, starting with Ariana DeBose as Asha. I love Asha. I love her character design. I love the color palette that they chose. I love her hair. And more than anything, I love how much Ariana DeBose loves her. I was not really a big Ariana DeBose fan. I mean, I respect the career that she's had. She was original cast of Hamilton. She's an Oscar winner. Um, but I just wasn't that big of a fan. And I am completely converted now because she just poured her heart and soul into this character. And it shines through. Isn't it refreshing? It, it really is. When you have a <laughs> Disney princess and the actress playing the Disney princess embraces being the Disney princess... I love it. No, and I, I really do, though. I love the the voice acting, and obviously the vocals are outstanding, but um, th this was just like a perfect marriage of the talent to the character. Yeah, aesthetically, she looks great. Um, th it's the hair. The way that they did the braids, which you kind of think about, um, we've talked about before, Something that stood out to me going back all of those years when they made Toy Story was such an emphasis on Andy's hair. And I think they said it took six months just to do the hairs on his head. The fact that they could do these braids, have them look so natural, have them sway so authentically, but do it in t uh, 2D animation, absolutely outstanding. Right, because... In Pixar, they developed software where they did Merida's hair for Brave just to get that volume and that whoosh. Um, I don't think that they applied that here because they're not using the exact same software as Pixar. Um, but it still looks incredible. And the freckles, too. I love yes. her freckles. Yeah. Very. She's a, such a wonderfully drawn character. And if you like the aesthetic... Just stick around for a little bit more. I'll just stay around a little longer. I'm just going to say that much. I think it's also worth noting, too, um, the dress design. That's where they pulled from the medieval yeah. reference. But they chose the hair because they wanted to give her some sort of contemporary feel. And I just I, I think it blends together so seamlessly. Chris Pine uh, plays King Magnifico. You know what? Now, I love Chris Pine. I think he's great. And I'm going to have a hot take here. I think Magnifico is probably a top 15 villain. I'm not going to give him into the top 10 because I think the, I think the, the, the uh, history is too rich. Um, but I think he's a top 15 villain. I think he's underappreciated. I think he's got an underappreciated villain song. Yeah, that's going to rub a lot of you the wrong way. We're going to talk about the music <laughs> later, okay? Um, I absolutely love Magnifico. He has become one of my 
favorite villains of all time. Same, 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 same. Um, I do believe he is so underrated because of that song, because people didn't want to give him a chance. But um, I absolutely love him. Is he in my personal top five villains? No, because I love the villains that are just evil for evil's sake. But I love what they did here. And I think that's probably because, you know, we talk about it on the show all the time, that I love Wicked. I love seeing the full arc and seeing how Elphaba descends into being the Wicked Witch and and owning, you know, everybody pinned her as being evil. And then she decided to own it because everything that she tried wasn't working out. Here, Magnifico isn't as conflicted, but I love that we get to see his origin story because we've never seen anything like this until they started doing the live action movies like Cruella. We've never, ever seen that with an animated film the fall from grace and the decision to go over to the dark side. But I love the character. I love the performance. I love Chris Pine in a musical. Uh, and I really love the character design. First of all, not enough people are talking about this. We have talked about Zaddy Triton on the show. I knew this was coming. Oh, my goodness. This is the most handsome Disney character of all time. I love that they made him a silver fox. And I think that that was intentional so that, you know, the audience has something. It's another likable quality for us to believe him, to believe that people would trust him to hand over their wishes. But, oh, my goodness, he is so handsome and so svelte from climbing up all those stairs to his tower all day long. Um, yeah, 10 out of 10 on the design. And I love his um, the, the costume, too. Oh, it looks so good. It is so gorgeous and so detailed. Um, I know that they were very careful to pull um, cultural references and they wanted it to be accurate and feel like it could be from North Africa and Spain where this island is supposed to be set. Um, but I think this might be sort of a wink and a nod to Frozen as well because it's not just that it's the the white um, cape it's got all the little diamonds in it, but those or not uh, the diamond shape, yeah, not yeah, diamond yeah, yeah. like sparkly diamond. Um, but that reminds me a lot of Frozen too. But the the details in it are so unbelievable. Like the underside of the cape um, is all stars, as a reference to you know obviously again wishing on a star, and it mirrors his again with the mirrors. Uh, it mirrors the roof in yeah. his tower. Um, and then they even had in all of the little details, because he's an alchemist and he's a sorcerer, uh, there's like elements and, and zodiac signs and they're all peppered in to the costume. It's, it's incredible. Angelique Cabral plays Queen Amaya. Opposite Chris Pine, obviously. Um, I said it before. I like this character a lot. I like the role that she plays in overthrowing him because she isn't just going to blindly follow him. And I think that you needed to hand the kingdom over. I, I think it would have been too cliche to, like, give it back to the people. It's like Bane. Yeah. Like to give it back to you. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's what... You needed, I think you needed a royal. I think you had to keep with a kingdom, with a castle. 
Um, and I think just handing it to Asha would have made no sense. It would have been like way too on the nose, way too fairy tale. You needed somebody for the people. And I think that they went the right way with Amaya. Well, and you get the best of both worlds, right? Because now you have the ladies taking over where you have your queen as the leader and Asha's going to be her right hand as the fairy godmother. Um, I absolutely love this character. I just wanted more of her. Um, you know, I don't want to get too repetitive. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just, now I'm just thinking about Bane giving roses <laughs> back to the people. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, because you're sitting there smirking. I was trying not to break. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I don't want to get too repetitive because I brought it up before. I think we just needed one more beat. I mean, it's a no brainer why she decided to leave him once he turns evil. Yeah. It's just he's so evil. It's a huge risk to take and you're going to go follow a bunch of teenagers to overthrow him. Yeah. I needed some sort of decision. Maybe a song would have been cool, even though they give her that moment in um, what I, knowing what I know now. Um, her own song to see her completely snap on him would have been really cool. But otherwise, um, same thing. Love the character. Love the performance. Love the design. Her costume is beautiful, too. And I love that they give her that little, like, Cindy Crawford mold. Yes. I thought that was such a nice detail. Um, I think that she could have had a song. There's one song that uh, on this soundtrack that I would have, I would eliminate eight days a week and twice on Sunday. Um, and I think that t you could have easily given her a song in that spot, but we're going to put a pin in that. I'm so interested to see what that song is because we're either going to be a thousand percent on the same page or we're going to have words. No, I think we're on the same page. Um, knowing your taste, I think we're on the same page. Alan Tudyk plays Valentino and I knew it would be Alan Tudyk because Disney loves Alan Tudyk, but it sounds like John Cleese. It is amazing how much he sounds like John Cleese and like yeah. almost like the Duke of Wesselton, but it's just different enough. I see. I was thinking Connery. Oh, I don't not Connery quite as not quite as um, gruff, but yeah, I, I think John Cleese is a better, a better comparison. Um, I mean, I, we all love Alan Tudyk. As Disney fans, Disney obviously loves him. It's always great to see him. But I think this was just really the perfect role with Valentino because part of the animals talking is Disney poking fun at themselves. So you really had to go over the top when you were giving this goat and giving them one of the film's main sidekicks a voice. Uh, so I love what they did here. I love that they didn't go for cutesy wootsy. I love that they didn't cast a child um, and that they just really leaned into the comedy of it. To me, he will always be Steve the Pirate from Dodgeball. And I hope that when they eventually, because we know they're going to make another Pirates of the Caribbean eventually, um, because sequels um, and reboots, the thing we're not supposed to do. I hope that they give him at least a cameo as oh, Steve the Pirate. That would be so great. It would be incredible. Yeah. Um, Victor Garber plays Sabino, Saba. That was a surprise with this casting. I mean, we all love Victor Garber, but uh, when I realized it was hit, like the voice sounded so familiar. And then when I looked to see who it was, I was like, oh my God, uh, this was fantastic casting. So good. 
he uh, like he's everybody's grandfather, right? Yeah. And I thought that he did such a good job of he never seemed frail or weak, but always seemed like he was going to take a step back and just do what Magnifico said. You know, we talked about that earlier. Like, he was just going to blindly follow because he trusted and believed that Magnifico had the uh, best interests of the Kingdom of Roses at heart, and they were just going to follow him no matter what. But he never did it in a way... Because they could have easily towed the line where he just seemed like a frail old man. Mm-hmm. Or they could have done the Moana thing and made her made him, like, borderline senile. They didn't do that at all. I thought that he's 100 years old, but he's playing it like he's 65. Yeah, he's very spry. I'm just thankful that they rewrote it and they had him live. And I think it's more effective for the story, aside from the fact that, you know, I I did not want to see the Moana thing where you actually see, like, the loss of a grandparent. And I will get very real with you right now, listeners. Part of my bias towards Moana is that... Granted, it was almost a year later. I had lost my grandmother and it completely rubbed me the wrong way when she comes back as the manta ray. And I was like, this is a terrible message to send to children that, you know, you're getting this closure and and she's guiding her. I mean, like, yes, that is what you should believe in. But I was irate over it. It was a raw nerve and it struck me and I, I was completely out. And then with Wish, we saw this two weeks after my grandfather passed away. And I was like, if if they take Saba out, I'm walking out of this theater. Like, I'm not even going to make the end of the movie. I, I will completely lose it. So this was very cathartic for me <laughs> that they gave him a full arc and he got his wish and we got to see it granted. But I really think that that served the story better than using his death as a motivator for Asha, because I really like what having a multi-generational story did here. And you get to see the two different points of view where he's old school and he is going to believe Magnifico and Asha is younger and she wants to change the game. It's what Strange World accomplished so well with having the different points of view and the different approaches to solving a problem. Natasha Rothwell plays Sakina, Asha's mother. It's nothing against Natasha Rothwell. It's that this character doesn't play a tremendous role. Mm -hmm. If you could sum this character up, it's, Asha, wait! It's every, like grasping parent as our lead character runs off into a forest and gets themselves in trouble like that's that's the purpose of this character yeah i hate to say it but she's a little plot devicey most likely because you couldn't have saba going off on his own once asha decides to leave he you're not gonna buy a hundred year old man in the rowboat by himself so i think you needed somebody to pair him with Um, But I also think we did need to see what happens when a wish gets crushed and to do that to Saba. Well, then you wouldn't have given him the wish back. So you lose that whole arc in him. But you're also not going to see going to want to see his wish being crushed and the the physical harm that comes along with that, Um, because then that would have portrayed him 
as the frail grandparents, to your point earlier. All right, let's talk about the teens here. Starting with Jennifer uh, Kumayama as Dahlia. I love her voice and I love um, at the end, you know, we're going to talk about the music momentarily, but in the reprise of this wish, the way that her and Ariana DeBose blend together is so beautiful. Um, but I really, I love the performance. Um, I, I mean, what's not to like about the character when they are supposed to very much mirror the seven dwarfs? Um, you know, th I think Dahlia was what made me catch on first as to what was happening. Once, because I think I realized the parallels through her before I even realized that there were seven of them and noticing the color palettes and all that kind of stuff. It was the glasses that gave it away for me. Um, but I really like the character. Um, I thought it was interesting uh and really well done that they gave her a mobility device because this is how you normalize this type of representation it wasn't a part of her character you know we see her using it but she wasn't defined by it she didn't have a sort of attitude with it one way or the other she wasn't acting as a victim um she wasn't uh she didn't use it as a crutch yeah, she's not Tiny Tim, right? Like, Tiny Tim, that's his entire character. I mean, that's the whole, really, at the end of the day, that's the heart of A Christmas Carol. Yes, but I mean, that's also different because he is very, very sick, and that's right. a part of it. But here, um, you know, I like that it's it's very visible, it's prominent. We see it, but Disney also didn't pat themselves on the back because they did this. You know, they didn't give her a huge moment like where she's fighting and swinging it around. Um, I think they could have, and it wouldn't have taken away from anything. Um, but I like that it's just there as a normal thing, and I think they handled it really well. I, I feel like if she needs this mobility device to move and stand... If, if she then took it and used it like a bow staff, I think it may have hurt the integrity of what they were trying to do. Probably. It's just 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 my hunch. Um, how about this one? Evan Peters as Simon? I had no idea. Honestly, no idea when we saw it. I completely missed it in the credits. And it wasn't until Disney posted a TikTok of him having the most fun I have ever... I don't think anybody's had this much fun recording a Disney movie since Robin Williams in the booth like just fits of laughter uh I I love it I I mean I think like I wish they would have given him a bigger role though like Simon is a very important part of the movie but you have Evan Peters like I just wish they would have given him a bigger part I know I mean see for him this and I mean they they started production on this in like 2019 so I'm wondering if he had this before Dahmer but like if he recorded this after Dahmer like this must have been the most refreshing thing ever it's probably why he was having so much fun that he got to do something so lighthearted afterwards um yeah I I agree I think you needed more of him um but that's tough to do because they were using Gabo as the decoy. Yeah. So with so many lines coming from Gabo and then Simon not being a part of 
the plan to overthrow, he does kind of get lost a little bit. Harvey Guillen plays Gabo. I ain't no snitch. <laughs> I love it. It's, uh, Gabo is so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, he really is. And so energetic. Like for for the parallel to Grumpy, um, he's not grumpy. He's feisty. That's what it is. So I really like that adjustment here. Yeah. Nico Vargas plays Hal. Um, she's inspired by Happy. Yes. Um, it's a background character. It's very much a background character. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of times where she says, I'm happy for you. So it's very see and say. Yes. Except we don't really see it. It's just very expository. Mm-hmm. Uh, Remy Youssef plays Safi. It's sneezy, but more disgusting. That's a surprise. Um, I, I mean, that's really huge casting on Disney's part because he's in Poor Things now. So, you know, he's they, they got him probably before he really, really blows up. Yeah. Uh, John Rudnitsky plays Dario. He's dopey. You see the ears wiggle. Um, we knew him on a very brief stint on SNL for like a year. Yeah, right. Um, he was funny. I liked him. You know, it's it's dopey, you know, but dopey with a voice. Yeah, it's, it's just hard because they, I mean, they, they really rolled the dice. I, obviously, you want to pay tribute to the first feature animated film. But this was a big risk having seven of them. Yeah. And I think this is the only place where it doesn't really pay off because there's characters that you wanted more from, more moments, more dialogue. Um, I, I don't think they all necessarily needed an arc, but you wanted to get a little deeper with some of them. And just by virtue of there being so many, you can't. Yeah. Bazima, voiced by uh, Della Saba. She's bashful. She hides, she lurks, she comes and goes. Um, but I like that because they modernized her by making her an introvert. Because I don't think that bashful would necessarily read to a child. This, you know, it makes her a lot more relatable. The only thing that I don't love is that she's got this whole, I, I buy that you have like your own private room, but how do you have this? Under Magnifico's radar, when it's probably like underneath his tower, you have this huge space, like a broom closet I would have bought where she's got like pillows and places to sit. This space is just so large. I'm like, where are you hiding this? We ready to talk about the music? So ready. Okay. So ready. Starting with the opening number, Welcome to Rosas. Um, it's a very strong open. I love the plant early on where they talk about the wishes and they say, but you won't even miss it because you're going to forget your wish the minute you hand it over to Magnifico. I I thought that this was just a fun... It's, you know, the, the it puts a smile on your face. You know, more recently when you're watching uh, Encanto, the family Madrigal puts a smile on your face. This, to me, does the same thing. I'm glad you bring up Encanto because that's immediately where my head went. Um, I love the song. I think it's catchy as all get out. And I love that it doesn't necessarily sound like it's from any one culture. I think it's a really nice blend, which is perfect when you're introducing Rosas, which is supposed to be a melting pot. Um, the only thing that I don't love about it is that 
the lyrics are so specific to the film, uh, which is what I think hinders. We don't talk about Bruno from being one of the greatest Disney songs of all time. I love the songs like a let it go where it's a huge character moment. And yes, it's so tied to Elsa, but it can be applied to so many other things and so many other situations here because you have baked Rosas into the lyrics this is not going to do anything other than kick off your film. It's not going to be the radio hit. It's not going to be the one that people are necessarily latching onto as much of an earworm as it is. See, I don't even care about that so much because in my opinion, the greatest song ever written for the Walt Disney company was feed the birds, which can only be attached to Mary Poppins, but I don't care about radio hit, you know, like to me, it doesn't make a difference. See, I think Feed the Birds does transcend Mary Poppins, though. I think with... I, I don't know. I, I think without watching Mary Poppins, without experiencing that scene with the snow globe, I don't I don't think it... I don't think it does. I mean, I think it... I, I think it's a be beautifully written song. That's why I say I think it's it's the best one of all time. I think the snow globe certainly adds that magical element to it, but I think that it it stands on its own and there's a message, you know, completely separate from Mary Poppins, but I also think that that has to do with who they chose to write this. And actually, you know, I do want to bring this up because it sort of plays into my opinion of the rest of the songs. So Dave Metzger uh, is the composer for the score. And I believe he was working with Julia Michaels, who wrote these songs. Julia Michaels is incredibly talented. Um, she's been writing songs since she was a teenager. She's got like a decade of work under her belt. Um, but she's still very young. She's just accomplished a lot in a very short time you know she's had a couple of radio hits I actually saw her uh open for pink on the beautiful trauma tour she's a great vocalist but I think that her strength is more in her writing than in her own performing um and I think that it was very intentional to tap her for this project she does have a history with Disney she sang background vocals for Demi Lovato's let it go actually so obviously she's got that tie to Jennifer Lee and Chris Buck already um, so I think that that's why she was brought on. And I think that it was very deliberate because you did want a younger sound. And there are songs that a couple songs that we're going to talk about where I feel like that really shows what I would have liked to see since you brought up Feed the Birds. Um, I would have really loved to see being that we're paying tribute to all of these years of filmmaking from the Walt Disney Company, if they had tapped Richard Sherman, if they had tapped Alan Menken, if they had tapped Lin-Manuel and had them work all together. Elton John. Elton John, Tim yes. Rice. Phil Collins. I mean, yes, you could have had all of your heavy hitters, but I'm talking about the staples, the ones that really defined what a Disney song is. In some cases, the ones that saved the company. Um, the Lopez's. Oh my goodness. Um, but as cool as that would have been to see them all work together, I, I mean, I would have liked them working together. I wouldn't have liked it if it was everybody doing a separate song because I don't think that that would have felt very cohesive. But unfortunately, the corner that they've backed themselves into is that Lynn and Alan were working on Little Mermaid literally at the same time this is being done because they started that pre-pandemic in 2019. Um, 
the Lopez's are tied up in Frozen 3 and 4, as it were. Um, so you can't have Richard Sherman doing this on his own at his age. I mean, could he compose something? Absolutely. But I think just putting the hours in, you need somebody to, to help him out. Um, so anyway, I see what they were trying to do with getting a fresh sound. But my sort of blanket statement for all of these songs is that they are a little bit too poppy and not enough Broadway. Um, interesting. Um, at all costs. I think that this is a very good song that works as a duet, but I don't think it should have been. I think for Magnifico to sing about doing this at all costs, I understand you're not going to necessarily give the villain two songs mm. because they're going to get their song. But I'm not exactly sure where Asha does anything at all costs. And when she's coming in and singing, I mean, she kind of tripped and fell into Wishing Upon a Star. She called in a favor early innocently said, well, why can't you just give it back? And then fed off of his anger, which comes after they sing this song. Mm. So I don't really know what Asha did at all costs. I think that she is singing about her grandfather's wish specifically. And I think that Magnifico is singing to himself, really, not about the wishes. I don't think that this is a genuine, uh, that it's coming from a genuine place that he's talking about the wishes. I think this is where it's starting to be planted, that he's protecting his own seat. Um, this is the song, I mean, I I like it in the sense of I like the duet. I love the way that they sound together. And I really like the lyric. But I think that this is actually a song that you could cut because they are going to find that common ground anyway. When she's talking about her father and what uh, looking at the stars meant to her and he's talking about the people and protecting them, they do come to that point of Magnifico sees himself in her. So I don't know that we needed a song to see it play out, even though the sequence is beautiful. Um, also worth noting... The Wishes, as another tribute and another Easter egg, they decided to have 1,923 bubbles to represent 1923, the year that the company was founded. Love the idea, but I have to imagine they immediately regretted that <laughs> when you have to physically animate them. If you were going to make this a duet at all, this may have been an opportunity to just have like Amaya slide into the room and she can also join in because at that point, you're looking at this as the royals are doing this at all costs to protect their kingdom. And then later, when yes. she turns against her husband to protect the kingdom, that's her at all cost. That is brilliant. More so, more so than Asha, really. Yes, because one of my other big notes on this song is that... I feel like it's weird preceding the I Want song to hear this coming from Asha. Yes. Um, and it also, this is one, like I said, it it sounds a little bit too poppy for me. However, at the same time, it's sort of reminiscent of Tarzan. And if this was Phil Collins, I'd probably have no problem with it. And we'd be going, oh my God, he went so hard for us. This wish 
This is the classic I want yeah. song. It is perfectly performed. It's beautifully animated. If there is one song off of this soundtrack that should be revered long term, yeah. it's this one. Yeah, like this needs to go into the next fireworks show. It honestly, it should go into happily ever after, like immediately. Um, I I absolutely love it. This is where Julia Michaels really knocked it out of the park. And what's incredible is that she did this when they were still developing the story. So she really gave the writer something to lean into when it came to fully developing Asha's character. And I think that that's pretty impressive that she was able to just nail it before you have a concrete version of the script done. Um, I, I think it's incredible. Like this is where it's like, okay, like you, you understand, you understood the assignment. Like you understand what Disney is. You understand the history um, and this to me does feel Broadway. Uh, so I, I absolutely love this song and I love how Ariana DeBose performs it. I'm a star. That's a character we didn't talk about, by the way. And I didn't want to overlook him just because he, he's not voiced by anything. The animation on star is so impressive. I mean, from being a tribute to Mickey with the heart shaped mask to the, uh, the, the line work, which is a sparkle, I mean, they were going in and referencing Tinkerbell to f and, and the Cinderella dress transformation to figure out how to pull this off, which I think is really impressive. Um, this is the one we're on the same page yep. about, isn't it? Okay, good. This yeah. Love Star, but this song. Mm. Like, it's fun for kids, but I feel like this is a song from the Sing soundtrack, that DreamWorks movie. Like, get rid of this. This is where you give Amaya a song. Did you look at my paper? That's, no. I was like, that is my note. This one is for the kiddos. I love the message here. I, I think that I, what I really like about it is that you're getting into like the science of, of you know, the composition of the universe. And we are all just stars. So I, I like that, that you get science and magic. Um. And I think it is a really positive message for kids, but it like it just didn't hit. Like this wasn't the under the sea. This wasn't the be our guest, and it it like it needed to be. Um, but this is where I think again you're going for radio hit over feeling like a Disney song. You know. This song shouldn't be a radio hit. But then again, most of the music that gets put out there right now is so bad anyway that I could see this being a hit. I honestly could. That's not to say the song is bad, but it's really a commentary on the industry in general. This is why I don't listen to a lot of new music. I think most of it is trash. No, but I really think that... Um Sorry, I'm totally getting distracted by Walty's snoring right now, and I'm hoping <laughs> that's not picking up on the microphone. Um... No, I, I really think that, like, it feels like the directive for this song was give the kids the earworm. And it's like, if a song is great, let's not undermine kids' intelligence. They're going to love it anyway. Look at Let It Go. It's an incredible song. But 
kids latched onto it because it's an incredible song, not because, you know, and it's a beautifully animated sequence. They get it. They get how you're, it's supposed to make you feel. Here, I feel like this was sort of like the Hail Mary of we need kids to love this movie, so make sure there's a song in it for them that they're going to sing. And I feel like if this was the phenomenon that Let It Go was, like, can you just imagine, like, walking through the parks, hearing the kids going, I'm a star, I'm a star. Like, that would grind on my last gear. Let's talk about, oh, yeah. I've been waiting to talk about this since we saw this movie in theaters. You want to talk about a song that's written for kids, okay? This song right here is written for everybody but late model millennials and Gen Zers, and (laughs) I am here for it. This is for the baby boomers. This is for Gen X. This is for early generation millennials, and this is the thanks I get. I love the fact that this song drove the right people crazy. (laughs) The people that are sitting, that, you know, you go to college, you get a general arts degree because you want to be an influencer and live on TikTok and you live in your parents' house and you you call yourself vegan and you drive a car with leather seats. These are the people that, that this song attacked and these are the people that it upset and I am here for it. I love this song. I love the tongue-in-cheek. I love the message that it sends because I firmly stand behind it. And I love how Chris Pine performs it. I think that this is the perfect eccentric villain song. And it is not ever going to get the appreciation that it should. And I am here for it. And I would get this tattooed. Okay? That's how much I like this song. And I don't even... You can come at me all you want. I love it for all the right reasons. This this is our song, our generation. This is our song, and we rally around it. This is why I don't manage in restaurants anymore, because I can't deal with these people, and this is the thanks that I get. Chris Pine, thank you so much, and to everybody that made this song possible. I have accepted my <laughs> award. Thank you so much. Could you just finish the thought, please, with a now get off my lawn? Absolutely. Get off my lawn. Okay, there it is. Well, you have fully showed your age, as if we haven't already on Monoreal Radio. Um, I, I honestly, I think you're taking away the wrong message from it. Like, this is the song where he decides to own his villainous nature. This is the fall from grace. This is everything that I've tried to do for you is falling apart. So I'm just going to lean into the chaos now. You're latching onto the one lyric that everybody else latched onto. And it's why they didn't bother to go see this movie. The don't even charge you rent. Like that's, I mean, that that's not the whole point of the song. He's not saying that this is a monetary issue. He's not deciding to tax them. This is about, he wanted to keep them under his, thumb and they're starting to question him this is a panic over what happens if I lose control I can't believe this was lost on you I mean like yes it is very tongue-in-cheek yes I think it is a generational thing so I don't completely disagree with you there but it's not the entire point of the song but for me to sit there and say this is his descent into madness of course it is it's the villain song I found something that I personally connected with, and this 
is what makes good music. And this, to your point, is why you don't undermine kids and why you just write a great song. Does a child... Does a six-year-old child really dissect the lyrics to A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes? No, but they like it because it's a good song. I found something here that I latched onto, and I think that this is a good song. Oh, yeah. this is the visceral reaction. I am sitting here defending this to the death, and I'm being told I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. But (laughs) but But we should just, like, appreciate the fact that I am so, like, connected to this. I, I love the character. And you know what? Sometimes I embrace the villain role. And I embrace this this villain for all of these reasons. Because he is fed up. Because he, he does want the control. But because he doesn't feel appreciated. That's the other thing. And that's where a lot of people who give so much of themselves to others... And he's the working class man, right? Yeah. But he's at the top of the food chain. That's, that's the odd like push and pull here mm-hmm. is everybody comes to that breaking point and he did and i just i love that it drove the right people crazy but th- this is just oh it is so good like th- I, c- I can't even put into words why i connect with this so much because i've already said so much but no i'm not grasping onto the wrong thing i just have such a deep connection with this character with this song with this message And you know what? Get off my lawn again. (laughs) No, but to that point, this might be the greatest Disney villain song of all time. Not just because it's showing us something different and showing us the descent, but because there are so many different takeaways from it. There are so many different things to connect with. And to touch on what I was saying earlier, this is the one that transcends the film because it's relatable on so many other levels. Um, What I just really don't appreciate, though, is that because people latched onto the wrong thing, Magnifico got labeled as a soft villain. And that also plays into why people didn't go see this. I don't think he's a soft villain. I think he's the most relatable villain of all time because you see the humanity there. Humanity that we don't get to see from the woman that gets pissed off because she wasn't invited to the party to the sibling that's been cast out from the royal family, whether it's the palace or whether it's Pride Rock, we just see them angry. We know what makes them tick. We know what their motivation is, but we never got to see the hurt person underneath that makes them that way. Realistically, one of the closest things is Bowler Hat Guy, and it's just because he lost the Little League game. that's a great one. You know what I'm saying? yes. That, okay, so we have seen grudge. something like this before. Yeah, but, but not like this, though. No, and that also plays into, it's like a time travel movie. But yeah, you, you've you never seen the full villain arc like this. He's literally taking people's dreams and wishes and crushing them. Yeah. Gleefully. He's what a great villain. He's a great villain. And he's handsome as hell. You know what else is a bop? Yeah. Knowing what we know now, I want to hear this at every run Disney race because this song makes me want to run through the wall. This sounds like something that you would have heard off of a a zombie soundtrack. I said Descendants. I have that written. Yeah. So, like, I love it. It's just you want to talk about an empowerment song. You want to talk about a rally cry and a battle cry. It's this one. Yeah, it's very decommy. 
but in all of the right ways and yes. it still works here. I love the entire sequence. I love that it's this bop of a song. I like the stomping. I love the moment for the characters. I love, love, love the moment of the seven dwarfs marching yes. with the shadow. I thought that was so beautifully done. Um, and I love all of the Dr. Facilier shadows that are, you know, they're referencing here. Um, as much as I love this wish and this is the thanks I get as songs, I think this is probably my favorite sequence as a whole, especially when you get a Maya bursting through the door and everybody's like, oh, I, I love like the fourth wall break where they're all looking and oh my God, what is she going to do? And then she gets her verse. Like the whole thing is great. Final thoughts. Uh, no, there's, there's one more song. There's the This Wish reprise, which again, we've never seen before because not only do you have the full company joining in on the I Want song, I love how they changed the lyrics to reflect everyone, not just Asha. Uh, I love how everyone bands together. Um, and like, this is really the moment that gives me the lump in my throat for this movie. Same. <laughs> um, I, I don't have much else to add on that. Uh, all right. Final thoughts on Wish. I'm still catching my breath. I, I so was going to say, you yeah, go you ran out of gas on <laughs> your Magnifico song. Um, I'm going to keep this short and sweet. Um, I mean, I absolutely loved the animation from the jump. I thought this was one of Disney's most stunning films. I said that when we walked out of the theater and I will stand by it now. Um, but I have so much more of an appreciation seeing how they did it and the lengths that they went through to use technology, which Walt would have loved to employ, but still keep that legacy alive. And I think it was, you know, the perfect amalgamation. Um, and honestly, um, you know, I didn't feel like it was an instant classic the first time I saw it, but with rewatchability, not only am I loving the film on its own more and more, um, this really made me fall in love with Disney all over again. It's an original idea. It's not a sequel. It's not a remake. It's a message that we so need right now. And I was like, this this is Disney at its finest. This is them doing what they do best. Um, and it was such a refreshing reminder to have this amidst all of the, you know, we, we've been very open about some of our feelings with the company and how streaming has impacted everything. And because I was personally affected by it, I was very bitter. You know, the irony is that we're down here now. We're so close. We spend so much time at Disney and I was sort of very bitter towards them over this. And, you know, you've got Iger saying things that make me feel like I felt when we had Chapek at the helm. Um, and this just made all of that go away. And I will be forever grateful to this film for giving me that revived love and, and reminding me of why I love Disney so much in the first place. It's the storytelling. When we saw this the first time, I said it was a middle-of-the-road Disney film. Um, do I still think it's a middle-of-the-road Disney film? No. I think it's an outstanding Disney film that falls middle of the pack. 
And it's only because yes. of the history of the company. Like, when I talk about middle-of-the-pack Disney films, I'm talking about, like, Meet the Robinsons and Great Mouse Detective. These are great movies. You know, Oliver and Company, one of my all-time favorites, but I'm not going to slot it into the top ten. That's where this lives. But when you have things like Cinderella, Snow White, uh, Sleeping Beauty, uh, The Jungle Book, The Lion King, Aladdin, Little Mermaid, like these films are, you know, Rapunzel, Princess and the Frog, or a, t- a Tangled, I should say. Um, there's I do just that all the time. so there's so many though that like by default get slotted into the top 10 and I'm leaving things out like yeah. sword in the stone, you know, like they're the, the Fox and the hound. This is my point. It's such a rich history that putting this in the middle of the pack is not a bad thing, but this is an instant classic. I hope this gets the elemental treatment. Yeah. I hope, you know, springtime's coming around and I remember being a kid and, you know, you were getting in your Easter basket, you were getting that VHS tape. And I hope that that is the life that this sees moving forward. Um, But we are interested in knowing what you have to say about uh, Disney's wish. You can join the conversation on social media at Monoreal Radio on all major platforms, or you can send us an email, monorealradio at gmail.com. We have a very exciting giveaway coming up and news, but first a quick break. News of the Week is proudly sponsored by KMV Travel. KMV Travel is a boutique travel agency that helps families plan personalized vacations and create unforgettable memories on land and at sea. KMV Travel specializes in Disney destinations, family theme parks, and most major cruise lines, providing unmatched service from start to finish with the belief that vacations are an important part of life. KMV Travel will help you and your family experience new places, learn about other cultures, relax, and reconnect with those who mean most. KMV Travel will guide you from booking to bon voyage, ensuring you have the tools you need to enjoy each moment of your vacation at no extra cost to you. Visit kmvtravel.com to connect with an expert travel advisor and start planning your getaway now. When we were planning our first family trip to Disney World, uh, Jackie was the first person that we thought of. Jackie helped us with every step of the planning, and she helped us pick the right hotel for our itinerary and our budget. She also gave us uh, great recommendations when it came to scheduling our parks, our dining reservations, and the attractions. These days, it feels like there's a lot that goes into planning a Disney trip, and there's a lot that we just didn't know about Disney World, and we're just so thankful for Jackie's advice in making it all a little bit easier. Yeah, when we got to the property, we, we realized we wanted to add on another park day, so we texted Jackie early in the morning, and she got back to us right away, and that really helped us make it happen. We had some amazing meals and drinks. We went to Cinderella's Royal Table. We went to Oga's Cantina. We rode Rise of the Resistance without waiting on a long line. And on Jackie's recommendation, we saw the Epcot fireworks from the Skyliner. This was an unforgettable family trip to Disney World, and Jackie made it happen. Thank you, Jackie. Well, I have my cup of water here. I'm just going to give you a little misting there. That's a little splash of cold water, because now we're going to talk about the news. You had this really beautiful thing that you said about Wish, and it being an original concept, and not being a sequel, and not being a reboot. And it's everything that we want, and it's everything that Bob Iger said we were going to get away from, so let's immediately announce more sequels. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I've, I'm trying to 
get past that you just literally threw water at me. I was like, why are you doing this? Why are you sprinkling me? Um, get the microphone wet. All right. <laughs> Let's start out. I mean, this is not going to surprise anyone that they announced Moana 2 and Sean and I went, huh, okay. Here's what everybody needs to keep in mind because everybody was like, completely shocked and i get why over the taylor swift nature of this announcement um you know they had the quarter one earnings call the other day and that's why all of these things were announced because disney's quarter one their fiscal year they started in october right so the last quarter of the year um there that's their quarter one so it's not as random as some people may think because even i was like why didn't you save all of this for D23 when you have an expo this year. But anyway, speaking of D23, Moana was actually announced, a lot of people forgot, as a Disney Plus series. I think the reason that they dropped this movie, especially when you look at the date, November, that's Thanksgiving weekend, we are coming off of the writer's strike. They don't have a big release for this year to get you through that Thanksgiving weekend and through Christmas break when the kids are off and you want to take them to the movies. So I think because this project was so far along, they took whatever they were doing for the series and went, oh, okay, movie. And they repurposed it. I think that they're just going for box office numbers here. And not only because they don't have something for the Thanksgiving slate, but I think that they are also trying to make a statement after the box office year that they had and everybody, you know, we talked about it earlier that they're sort of rooting for Disney to fail. I think that they thought this was a surefire way to put up some numbers and close out the year strong. So it's getting the uh, Bell's Magical World treatment. Throw Moana at it because Moana will fix everything. Pretty much. And then you've got Zootopia 2 as your Thanksgiving release for 2025. And Frozen 3 and Toy Story 5, which have both been announced, are going to be in 2026. But you know what's good about that is that writers are back to work because now we've clearly got scripts in place and production happening. We knew we were getting a Zootopia 2. We knew that we were getting a Frozen 3 because they've already announced Frozen 4. Right. How many times is Toy Story supposed to go away? And I, I don't say that because I dislike Toy Story. You had the most perfect conclusion. Right. Right. You brought in a fourth film that nobody asked for. And now you're bringing in another film because you need money? You know, like, I, give us something new. This is kind of our point, right? But you've got Iger coming out and saying, just a couple of months ago, we're going to put creative in the hands of creative. New storytelling, original, reboots and sequels. No, we need new stories, new characters, new concepts. And you've done nothing but announce sequel after sequel after sequel after sequel. They're playing it safe. But they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. Yes. Um, playing it safe is throwing a lot of money at Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm honestly shocked that this didn't happen earlier on in the era's tour, especially because, you know, they have her documentary of how she wrote the Folklore album on there. I kind of thought that this was like a lasting partnership. And I was, I mean, I think the era's tour was on Hulu, so they probably had a piece of it anyway. But I just feel like... Wow, Disney, you were late to the party. So that's going to start um, on March 15th, and there's going to be four additional acoustic songs. So another way of throwing 
money at the... No, listen, you're throwing money at the streaming service. I'm fine with that because, you know, you've got to bring back some subscribers and keep people happy. And, I mean, Taylor Swift's the most famous person on the planet right now. It's only a matter of time until she writes for a Disney film. Um, that That is going to come eventually. I think that that's safe to say. Not for a while. I don't think she's in any rush to do that. Um... But I do believe that that is coming down the pike. I would actually, uh, and I forgot to bring this up before, you know, again, no disrespect to Julia Michaels because she did a great job. I would really like to see Sarah Bareilles write for Disney because she's got the pop and she's had the radio hits, but she's also got the Broadway experience. And I think that that would just be like the perfect blend. But anyway, to your point, um, you know, when you're trying to, to boost the streamer, this is how you do it. Instead of dropping Pixar films or ignoring theatrical releases, this is what you use the streamer for. And you're getting the best of both worlds. You're going to have a mega hit on the streamer, and now you're doing theatrical releases again with your biggest cash cows. Yeah. Uh, also, news comes out that Disney is collaborating with Epic Games. They are the creator of Fortnite, which is, I've never played it, but it is a, like, Everybody else's, I think, were like the last two. Um, they're acquiring a $1.5 billion stake in the company, and they're going to do their own games and their own entertainment. Why? Uh, other than the fact that you know that Fortnite makes a lot of money, so you're investing in the company, because what you're really doing, in my opinion, is investing in Fortnite. Um, we, we got other things that we need to worry about, and I you know... You've got all these sky blue, blue sky, whatever in the hell they're called projects. Blue sky. We do this every week. The phrase is blue sky, Sean. All of these projects, you've announced intentions on investing in the parks. Um, and every now and again, you get a half-baked experience. Um, and sometimes you avoid half-baked experiences like the Mary Poppins attraction that's not coming why are we taking a billion and a half dollars and investing it in a video game company? You have other areas that probably need that money more so than a video game company. That was my initial thought, but I do have a theory. I mean, obviously, Fortnite is wildly popular, but the name of the company hit me. Epic Games. What does Universal have coming out? Epic Universe. Now... When you're searching the word epic, Disney is still going to come up. I honestly think this is a knee-jerk reaction to the third gate opening at Universal and that Disney still wants to be the front runner and, and they want, you know, basically to have their name attached to the word epic so that when it's coming up and you're searching it, they're, they're not overlooked might be a reach. I think it is, but I don't but you might be onto something. They they it wouldn't surprise me if they did something like that. Um we've got a really great giveaway here. Um we have a Wish Funko Pop. It is Asha with Star. It is really cool looking. I mean, they got her freckles, um the detailing on the dress, the hair. It it's a really cool Funko. We're going to run this on social media like we did with the uh, last contest. Um, we're going to put the post up. Uh, be sure that you are following us on social media. Uh, be sure that you like the post. And 
comment with your favorite Easter egg from the film Wish. We want to know what your favorite Easter egg is. If you do that, you will be entered to win the Funko Pop. Um, let's run this until... We're going to give you until Monday, February 19th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I want this one to breathe a little bit because I think that this is this is one of the nicer Funkos that we've given away. And I think that there's going to be a lot of interest in this. So I'd like to give this one a little bit more breathing room. Uh, so be sure to be following us on social media. That way you guys can enter to win that wonderful giveaway. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monorail Radio. Monorail Radio will always be free, but there are many ways that you can support the show. Give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. Join the conversation on social media at Monorail Radio on all major platforms. Share your favorite episodes with family and friends who may enjoy them. And of course, book your next trip with Jackie. Links to everything can be found at monorealradio.com. We all get one story. Make yours a magical one. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.